to think of Jesus as loving and kind, or if you've gone through your life thinking that the opening line of Charles Wesley's great children's hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, is all there is to say about Jesus. Jesus is loving and kind. Often he was gentle and mild, meek and mild, but that doesn't change the fact that he unsettled people. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you discover that he not only unsettled people in general, but he seemed to unsettle religious people in particular. This morning in these few short verses, we're going to see how Jesus unsettles some more people. Matthew's wee connecting word translated as then, the opening word of our passage, verse 14, it invites us to connect what we read last week with what we've just read this week. Both passages dealing with religious communities who find Jesus unsettling. They bring their questions to Jesus and he answers them. Last week, you may remember, we looked at verses 8 to 13. Uh, we found then that it was the Pharisees who were unsettled. They were standing outside Matthew's party and asking Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their question served as an invitation for us to think about morality. What does God think of sinful people? This week, it's the disciples of John in verse 14 who feel unsettled by Jesus. So they come and they ask their question. Unlike the Pharisees who had asked the disciples about Jesus, this, these guys are asking Jesus about his disciples. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples do not fast? Theirs is more of a religious question. What kind of religion does God want? That's the kind of question we'll try to answer today. These are the disciples of John the Baptist. What do you remember about John? Shall we have a quick look? Chapter 3, click back with me. The opening verses of chapter 3, Matthew tells us, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As soon as he's introduced John and his message, Matthew breaks into his own interpretive comment about John. He says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John is a preacher. He's preparing the way for the one coming after him. And we know by now that the one he's preparing the way for is none other than Jesus Christ. But what does Matthew tell us about John himself? What kind of a, a person is he? Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. If you've heard that too often and, and you've forgotten to try to picture that, try to picture that. If you were describing John in fancy theological language, you'd say he was an ascetic. 
But if you don't have that kind of language and just observed him, observed how he lived, all that he'd left behind, all the, all the convenience and comfort that he'd left behind, and that he was now surviving in the desert on a diet of next to nothing, we might say that John is hardcore. John had an intensity about him, an urgency. He was warning people about God's coming judgment, so he was taking no prisoners. With that kind of a teacher, we shouldn't be surprised by the kind of disciples John has. We can easily imagine them. They express their loyalty to John, to their teacher, by following in his footsteps. So they're preaching God's judgment. They're confronting the Jewish leaders. They're praying. And, and yes, they're fasting. They're fasting. They're living this hardcore lifestyle of an ascetic. And we shouldn't be surprised then by their question to Jesus. Jesus, how is it that the Pharisees fast and we fast often, but you and your disciples don't fast? In, in some regards, it, it feels like it could have been an awkward moment. Has Jesus been caught on the hop? Are, are John's disciples, uh, are, are they more religious? Are they more committed to their faith than, than Jesus and his disciples? It could have been an embarrassing moment, but, it, but it's not. Not for Jesus. Instead, he explains why this isn't the right time for him and his disciples to fast. And he does so by talking about a wedding and a bridegroom. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus has been asked about fasting, and all of a sudden, he's talking about a wedding, about a bridegroom and guests. Why is that? Well, it's because he wants to, to shift gears decisively here. He wants to be clear about an absolute change in perspective that comes with his coming into the world. Jesus talks about his coming into the world in terms of a party, a wedding banquet. The gospel writer Matthew seems to love this picture that Jesus uses. He, he records in chapter 22, Jesus' parable of the wedding guests, those who made their excuses and wouldn't come to the wedding. Chapter 25, Jesus' parable of the 10 virgins getting ready for a wedding banquet. Jesus talked often about weddings and banquets. And his basic point, life with me in the kingdom is like the greatest kind of party. The gospel, the good news that the kingdom has now come should fill us with the same joy that we experience when we're invited to and we're guests at the best kind of a wedding reception. So when he talks here in chapter 9 about guests and the bridegroom, he's saying, when the king is among you, when you're getting such a vivid foretaste of life in the kingdom, that's no time to fast. Notice, by the way, that Jesus isn't saying that his disciples should never fast. He's just making a point that these aren't the right circumstances and this isn't the right time. Christians can fast very helpfully sometimes, I think. 
We can fast to awaken an appetite for God. We can fast to anticipate more of the kingdom than we've received so far. But we don't fast in order to, to bring in the kingdom. In Jesus, the kingdom has arrived. The party has begun. Hopefully you can see that John's ministry and the ministry of Jesus weren't in conflict. It's a matter of focus and of timing. John's work came before the arrival of Jesus. His, his focus was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus by warning them of, of God's coming judgment, by calling them to repent. And so we engaged in fasting. Jesus' focus was on how the kingdom in him had already come. So he invited people to join the party. If it's taken you a, a wee bit of time to get your head around this, don't worry, you're not alone. Flick over to chapter 11 for a moment. There's a passage there where Jesus is explaining his relationship with John the Baptist a little further. In verses 18 to 19, he talks about a great irony. Some people rejected John because he was too hardcore, too much into the fasting. And then others reject, and, and then the same people rejected him for the opposite reason. Look, look at verse 18. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her words. As far as Jesus is concerned, John the Baptist was right to fast when he did. But Jesus and his followers were right not to fast as they did. Friends, I want to slow down for a moment and reflect on what we've been thinking about here, this part of Matthew 9. Jesus unsettling people again. Those who fasted, troubled by his feasting. He has them scratching their heads. What kind of religion does God want? The truth is, Jesus loved a party. He loved being with people around dinner tables. He loved to be at a meal. The, the gospel writer Luke does a little bit more with this than Matthew does in his gospel. Luke tells us so often about Jesus being at a meal. Matthew, or sorry, in Luke chapter 5, we have Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. That's the passage we looked at last week in, in Matthew 9. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed in the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, he's feeding 5,000 people. In Luke 10, he's eating in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, he's at a meal. And he urges people to make sure they invite the poor to their meals rather than just their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to a meal, this time at the house of Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper, which is a meal. And Luke 24, the risen Christ is at a meal with the disciples after his journey to Emmaus. Every page you turn, Jesus seems to be at a meal. One commentator claims in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal 
or he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Why do I labor that this morning? It's to make sure that we're unsettled by the word of God every bit as much as we ought to be. We need to be unsettled. Especially those of us who have some idea that the kingdom is all about fasting. Maybe we have a rather stoic bent. Or we have an appetite for discipline. We're like John the Baptist, we're ascetics. We're drawn to the idea that the kingdom comes whenever we strive and we fast. And when we're showing lots of commitment in how we practice our religion. What kind of religion does God want? He wants joyful religion. Why is that? It's because of, of the focus that joy gives us. Let me explain. In our disciplined, dutiful religion, the focus remains on us. Here's me. Here's what I've done. In our joyful, feasting religion, our focus is on him. Here's the Lord. Here's what he's done for me. Jesus unsettles us in our religion. He shows us that he came to bring the kingdom to those who fast and those who don't. He invites us to the party, those who are disciplined and those who are ill-disciplined. Whoever you are, don't miss the invitation. Jesus is unsettling people. John's disciples, the Pharisees, in the opening couple of verses of our passage, he's been challenging us about fasting and feasting. In the closing couple of verses, he helps us to think about the new and the old. Look at verses 16 and 17. Even those who are sympathetic to Jesus and his message are wondering, how are we going to combine these new things that Jesus calls us to, this gospel that he's preached with our old practices in the Jewish law. How are we going to do that? As always, Jesus knows the human heart. He's gracious enough to offer us the guidance that we need for this phenomenon. And so he teaches John's disciples and anyone else who'll listen how to think about the new life he brings and how it relates to our old ways. He gives us a couple of analogies. Luke calls them parables in his gospel. And the basic point's quite clear. The new life that Jesus brings can't simply be accommodated in the old forms of Judaism. In his first parable, verse 16, he talks about the old and new cloth. You'd be daft, Jesus says, to sew a new patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old pair of jeans. Wash them together the new bit of cloth will shrink, it'll tear away from the old, and it'll leave you with a hole bigger than you started with. You'd be daft. Don't do it. His main point is clear. The new and the old can't simply be put together. The second analogy in verse 17 is parallel, and it makes the same point. Whenever he talks about new wine, I'm going to guess 
that most of us here aren't fermenting wine at home in leather bags. Am I right? Yeah? So we need to just think quickly about how this might work. He's talking, when he talks about new wine, he's talking about wine in the early stage of its fermentation. If you're going to ferment wine in skin bags, Jesus says, remember that it's going to expand. The bags better be pliable, able to expand with the fermenting wine. If you put new wine into old wine skins, which have no more give in them, then three things are bound to happen. The skins will tear, the wine will all pour out, and the skins will be ruined. Everything will be lost both the wine and the wineskins. That all makes sense, but, but what's he actually talking about? At this point, we can regard Jesus as speaking in very specific terms and in very general terms, I think, at the same time. Specifically, he's talking about this moment in time, the moment when he's uniquely ushering in the kingdom of God. The new wine he's talking about is the newness that he brings in the gospel. The very kind of life he's come to bring. And by the way, didn't John flag that up for us right at the start of his gospel? Do you remember when John, the gospel writer, chose to tell us of the first of Jesus' miracles, what it was? Turning water into wine at a party in Galilee. Jesus is the new wine. The old wineskins are, are the established patterns of behavior based on the existing interpretations of the Jewish law. And, and Jesus' point is, the new life I've come to bring, it's too dynamic. It's too big to fit into those old frameworks and structures. It's tempting to, to, to try to combine the two. I understand why you'd try to do it, but don't. It won't work. It, it'll fail. Jesus' gospel message requires new patterns of behavior based on Jesus' own interpretation of the law. We thought about this last year when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. We had Jesus dealing with the law, and we were saying, not that, but this. If the people of Jesus' day were to receive the new life he came to bring, then they would need to accept his new interpretation of life in the kingdom. They'd need new wineskins. So folks, that's the specific matter that Jesus is addressing with these parallels, the relationship between new life in the kingdom that he came to bring and the old ways of understanding the Jewish law. You can't mix the two, Jesus said. You've got to replace the old ways with the new. That's not exactly our issue though is it it seems to me that jesus teaching here while dealing very specifically with a moment in time also has something to say in a more general way to all of his followers at all their moments in time it can help us to think about old ways and new ways in our life with god for communities like ours we can sometimes fear change i don't know if you'd agree maybe you love change you love things uh, becoming new that gives you a bounce a, a lot of us fear change 
the old ways are comfortable and they seem right. The, the new things that come along, they often seem suspect and even wrong at first. So we can fear new things. It's important, of course, not to embrace everything just because it's new. Our culture throws up endless novelties and they don't all help us to love God and love each other. They're best avoided. Let's be sure to reaffirm our commitment to Jesus Christ and to strengthen our grip on his gospel. Let's grow in our faithfulness, no matter how much fickleness we see around us. And yet, let's be open to the new. Our God is a God who makes things new. He created this world when there was nothing there. He created a world. He made something new. He created a new family when he called Abram to follow him. He constituted a new nation when he had Israel stand before him at Sinai and made them his own chosen people. And even though that chosen people failed him time and again, he never gave up on them. At just the moment when we thought that his love for them might be growing old, he spoke through his prophets and he said, see, I am doing something new. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Our passages these last weeks, we've seen what happens when God comes and he lives among us. He, he asks us to change. When we question him about that, he tells us that, that his new life isn't going to fit into all of our old forms. Our religion will need to be renewed. But the change mustn't stop there. Jesus hasn't come just to change our, our frameworks, just to change our religion. He's come to make people entirely new. What, what is it Paul says when he talks about what Jesus does in a person? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. To be a disciple, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be made new. And even then, that's only the, the beginning of Jesus' transforming work. His work in our lives is a precursor to his work in the whole world. He looks toward a time when he will create a new heavens and a new earth. In Revelation 21, he says, I am making all things new. Our God loves making things new. As I've meditated on these passages from God's word and as I've considered my new creation, I've seen that my, my clinging to my old ways is, is usually simply a form of pride. It's me saying, I've got this right. My ways are best. Any other way must be a step backwards or a step further from God. And, and while I think that way, 
I'm closing myself off from the God who is making all things new. While I look at my life and my community and my church life and say, it ain't broke, so I won't fix it. Jesus Christ comes alongside and he says, this whole world is broke. And I'm making it new. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we choose fasting over feasting. When striving in our own strength prevents us from receiving what you long to give. Lord, free us up to enter the joy of the kingdom. Lord, forgive us for clinging to our old wineskins. Lord, we get so fixated on our own ways. We easily descend to the point where we say, I don't care what happens. Just let me keep my old wineskins. We get so fixated on the wineskins that we don't even notice that it's been years since we've tasted any new wine. Lord, we long for new wine, for fresh outpourings of the love of Jesus in our lives, for new life in his spirit. Lord, give us new wine and free us up to find whatever wineskins are adequate for what you're doing among us. We pray it in Jesus' name.